And as you're being seated, if you would turn in your copies of God's Word to Micah chapter 5. If you're following along in the Pew Bible, that's page number 927. 927. As you can see, we'll have a number of scripture passages that we'll be looking at today. I will start by just reading Micah chapter 5, verse 2. And then as we go along throughout the message, we'll turn to those other passages and read those at that time. But for now, Micah chapter 5, beginning in verse 2. Listen carefully, because this is God's word that is for you. But you, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from from ancient days. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let us go to our God and ask his blessing on our text today. Oh, Jesus, we thank you that you have recorded for us your workings with your people, Israel. And we can look to these promises and see that they were promises to us as well. I pray that we would be encouraged by them and trust you all the more. ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we are in the midst of our Advent series. We've been going through... In Luke chapter 2 has been kind of the organizing principle for this month. So we are looking at the angel's proclamation of good news. The angel gives his glad tidings and he says um, that, and the passage that we're looking at today is, is the, the section of it that we'll be looking at, is for unto you is born this day in the city of David. This day in the city of David. The reason why I have chosen this is because this announcement of good tidings is something that God had predicted from long ago. In fact, we had read in Matthew chapter uh, 2 the prediction from Micah 5 that had come true. That there was going to be born a ruler out of Bethlehem. This is really a sermon about the fact that God keeps his promises. Have you ever broken a promise that you've made? I know I have. There are lots of reasons as to why we can break our promises. Some of them are because we make a promise to someone that was important to them, but wasn't very important to us. It was a small thing. We promised our children we would take them for ice cream if they behaved, but we forgot. We weren't able to take them. And we wrote it off as like, well, this is one thing. We'll make it up to them at some other point later. Or perhaps we have broken promises because we made a promise and then realized we couldn't keep it. We had promised someone some time, but we realized we didn't have any time to give. We had promised someone some money, but we realized we didn't have enough to provide. And so we break the promises because we are unable to fulfill them. And sometimes we make promises that we just simply can't live up to at all. The thing that we had promised would be great turns out to not be all that great at all. We were able to misjudge what we were actually able to do and how the others would perceive that. We've gotten very used to this kind of life. 
It's not only failings of promises between children and their parents, but also promises between the contractors and the things that they'd say that they do. Even when there are contracts involved, promises are broken. And we're so used to that that we would be forgiven to assume that God works in the same way. Like, well, God promises things, but how can I be guaranteed he'll actually follow through? I mean, even in the Psalms, it asks, what is man that you are mindful of him? We're really small. When you think about the grand scale of the rest of creation, we occupy a really small part of that. It would be easy, we would think, for God to just forget that he's made a promise to us. See, he's over here dealing with Saturn. Or we could think that he is not able to do the things that he's promised to do. Or that even if he does keep it, it's probably not going to be that great after all. Well, I'm hoping we can see as we look into these passages that I've selected for today, as we can show that none of those things are true. God always remembers his promises, even to the little people. That God is powerful to produce those promises, no matter how big of a promise he's made. And that when he has fulfilled those promises, we will look with joy and amazement at what he's done. We're going to organize those things under our two points that you can see in your bulletin on the back of the prayer guide. Quite simply, our first point, God keeps every promise. God keeps every promise that he's made and that God will fulfill his promise in his time. That's usually the part where we have more trouble with. He will fulfill those in his time and on his scale. So we're going to begin our time today looking at God keeps every promises out of a book we don't talk about a whole lot. The book of Micah. Micah is, has been called one of the minor prophets. It's not because he dug for things in the ground. It's not because he was an unimportant prophet, but just his book was shorter than everybody else's. So Isaiah goes on for 66 chapters. Micah manages to get it done in seven. But he makes a very special promise to us in Micah chapter 5. But in order to understand why this is important. We'll need a little bit of background as to what Micah is doing. Micah is writing about the same time that Isaiah is, one of the major prophets. So this would have been right about 700 BC, so 700 years before Christ came to earth. He is in the region of Judah, and he is prophesying to this country that they are not obeying what God has told them to do. It can be hard sometimes to read the Old Testament prophets because they're making reference to a lot of cities that we have no idea who they are or why they are. And sometimes it feels like that, well, maybe what they're doing is out of touch with what we're dealing with today. Well, if you were to read chapters 1 through 3, and I hope you do as you read because all of the Bible is profitable, it details problems like false teachers, corrupt judges, false worship prostitution and prophets who just say what the people want to hear. Can we find any relevance to any of those problems today? That's all we seem to deal with. False worship, broken sexuality, all of these things are things that we deal with all the time. And God's response, and God is not any happier with them today than he is back here in the Old Testament. So he prophesies that there's going to be judgment even for Judah, the one that he is, the, the capital city of Jerusalem, where his temple is, 
Just because God has favored this area before does not mean that it is above judgment, that it is above the law. So he prophesies judgment, that it will come, and it does. God gives them another hundred and some years to get their act together. They choose not to, and judgment comes. And they are, it's the Babylonian empire this time that rolls through and takes Judea into exile. But before he does that, he makes a promise that, there, that one day that there is going to come. Here in Bethlehem, Bethlehem e Fafratha. This word here probably refers to the region in which Bethlehem was, kind of similar to our idea of a county. But it mentions that Bethlehem is a really, really, really small place. In fact, it's so small when Joshua was divvying out the land to all of the tribes of Judah, it's not mentioned. It's just kind of part of this wider area. It's only five miles from Jerusalem, so we might have considered if Bethlehem had our modern idea of a mailing address, they probably would have had a Jerusalem mailing address as it just would have been part of this larger area, a lot in the same way that we view Bug Tussle, Alabama as to be part of Coleman County, a small place. And we wouldn't think that anything important is going to come out of Bethlehem. Or we think, well, Bethlehem did have a one-hit wonder. His name is King David. So we have one popular ruler that has come out of Bethlehem. But you wouldn't expect anything else. But here, what is being prophesied is that there is going to be a ruler that's going to come. One long anticipated from ancient of days that is going to bring peace to the region, as it says in verse 5. Now, I can imagine, because this prophecy is made, and this prophecy isn't fulfilled for another seven centuries And before that, we have the Babylonians roll in and destroy all of Jerusalem. Bethlehem's not mentioned, again, probably because it's so small. People are probably more worried about the capital city. And I could imagine, as the Israelites and the Judeans are being carted out of their homeland, off to be slaves in Babylon, that I could imagine some of them would be looking over to the other and say, well, I guess that's it for that promise. Bethlehem's not even there anymore. I guess this ruler's not coming because we've just been taken over by one of the greatest empires the world had seen up to that point. And I could imagine there was probably the one sitting next to him who's very spiritual, who was saying, it's like, well, Micah had promised that there was still going to be one to come. And I could imagine the cynic next to him that says, yeah, you keep believing that. It's a destroyed city. Our eyes tell us nothing's coming. And I could imagine that that force of that argument gets stronger and stronger with each century that goes by. It's been 100 years since we've made that promise. He's not coming. It's been 200 years since that promise. He's not coming. It's been 700 years. He must not be coming. Until we get to Matthew. And he comes. The ruler that was expected is Jesus. So do you see how God fulfills promises? He didn't forget. Did he fulfill it within 10 minutes? No. But he does it in the fullness of time. When the time was right, he sent his ruler to come and bring peace. He always remembers. I hope that this will give us confidence for us. 
When God has made a promise to you, he will fulfill it in time. Maybe not to your time scale, but he will fulfill it in time. It mentions in Psalm 103 as the one who heals all of your diseases. Some of you have been struggling with diseases for a long time. We've been praying for a long time that we'll be freed. It might not happen immediately. Might not even happen in this life. But those promises will be fulfilled. We can see from this thing, the reason why it's not being fulfilled is not because God forgot. But maybe it could be, if you're thinking, it's like, okay, well, maybe God remembers. But maybe God's just not able to do the things that I need him to do. Well, for that, let's turn to Isaiah chapter 7. If you're following along in the Pew Bible, that's page 679. Here in Isaiah chapter 7, again, this is, right, this is written right about the same time that Micah was being written. And this is, again, in the midst of crisis. People are not doing what they're supposed to be doing, again. And they are under the threat of invasion, again, for the crimes that they've committed. But the Lord is going to promise there's going to be deliverance. And he tells the king, I know that's a lot to believe, so ask me for a sign that I'm going to do what I say that I'm going to do. And the king, in a moment of sounding spiritual, verse 12, he says, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. When the Lord tells you to ask for a sign, you ask for a sign, but the king doesn't. But the Lord gives him a sign anyway. And this is a sign that is for us as well. Here in verse 14, it says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which as we all know means God with us. Now this is quite a promise that he gives to us. It was one thing to expect that there would be a grand ruler that would come from a podunk town. That's one thing. But to defy the laws of biology, that a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, is quite a different promise, isn't it? In fact, it's so unbelievable, most people have tried to decide that that's not what Isaiah was saying at all. Scholars, as always, will find a million ways in which to read the scriptures other than how they plainly do. And what they'll say is like, well, this word here for virgin just means woman of marriageable age. Just means a young lady is going to bear a child. Well, what sort of impressive sign is that? That happens all the time. And in fact, just to please our scholars, the word that they use here for virgin is meant to be contextual, meaning that, it, that the context determines what this word means, whether it's a young lady or it means someone who hasn't had any relations with someone before. And of course, the best interpreter of Scripture is in fact Scripture. And how Matthew reads this passage under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit says that it was a virgin. The Greek's clear there. So this is what he is telling them, that he is going to bring about this defiance of biology. This means that nothing is too hard for God. That's the next thing that we need to remember. 
God does not forget the little people. He's not forgotten you. You didn't slip through the cracks, didn't get lost in the paper shuffle. And also the reason why you haven't had things happen is not because God was unable to do it. Because we see that that was exactly fulfilled in Matthew. A virgin did conceive and bore a son and called his name Emmanuel. Again, that was 700 years later. But the Lord can do miraculous things. Now, oftentimes we are always, we are searching for that moment of dramatic divine intervention in our lives. We like to see the suspension of the natural order of things to do, to get the things done that we want to. And actually that's not very common, not even in the Bible. We tend to think, oh, back in Bible times, you were tripping over miracles every other day. We really weren't. There were hundreds of years that was going by. We can, if you were to sit down and read First and Second Kings, you can cover a few centuries of Israel's history. And most of that was just like today. Had to get up, had to go get the groceries, had to take the kids to school, had to bring them back, and nothing miraculous happened. So only occasionally does the Lord step in and do miraculous things. Not because he runs out of battery to do those sorts of things, but it's because he governs the world and such most of the time, he doesn't need to do those things. But he likes to give us the miraculous just to show us that he can, to be reminded of that. But I remember in a circumstance of him working all things naturally, I remember I was driving home from a presbytery meeting one time and someone pulled out in front of me and then went extremely slowly along this main road. It was a moment of sanctification for me. I don't like being slowed down. And the person seemed to only do that for just a little bit, like maybe a block or two, and pulled back out. And I couldn't understand why someone would want to go that slowly. And I was going to begin complaining as I went on down the road until around this blind curve, someone had crossed the double yellow line and was speeding around the corner. And had I not been slowed down by this little car, I almost certainly would have been involved in what was likely would have been a fatal head-on. Because it was a main road, I would have been going fast, and this person was going even faster. Now, was that a miracle? No. A miracle would have been God picked up the car, put it up and over, and drop it down. He didn't need to do that. Just a little car, just to slow me down, and also remind me that he has purposes for traffic. The Lord can work through all these things. So when we ask for a divine healing, if we get it, that's wonderful. That's the Lord's working. But if we don't, it's not because God forgot. It's not because God was unable to. He fulfills his promises. So that means he has something for us to do. And he's doing something in our lives. And the things that he is doing are far more than we can ask or think. Turn with me just a page or two over to chapter nine of Isaiah. As he delivers more about this coming child into the world. In Isaiah chapter nine, and he gets us to verse six. A passage set famously to music. And Isaiah says, for to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, 
prince of peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Can you see how this prophecy keeps evolving? We get more and more detail as we go along. There's going to be a ruler, and he's going to come from a really small town. This one is going to be born of a virgin and be called God with us. And the government is going to be on his shoulders, and he's going to rule the world. That's a big promise he's giving to us here. I mean, look at how this is being, this person's being described. Some scholars have worked through the language that's here. It talks about wonderful counselor. This does not mean someone who's, you know, sitting in a chair with a legal pad asking you to talk about your thoughts. What the counselor here is referring to is a wise ruler, someone who's very capable of what he is asked to do to administrate a government. That he is a wonderful counselor. That he is an everlasting father. The relationship that he has with his subjects, this isn't some distant, far-off ruler who doesn't really understand how his policies are going to affect everybody else who's around him, that he views his subjects as his children, someone who he deeply cares about and one who's very approachable. It's called the Prince of Peace. Now, he's not called the prince instead of the king of peace. The king of peace is like he's somehow demoted. He can only put a little bit of peace. No, the word prince here is basically akin to our word of administrator. He is one that's able to administrate and to distribute peace, shalom, wholeness. And then, of course, the one that I've skipped here, mighty God. That's quite a title, isn't it? This is going to be God himself that's going to ascend this throne. And that's why we can look into verse 7 with confidence. That the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. We're not accustomed to that. Especially here in America. Things upend every four years. It's like, well, it's great we've got this now, but we know this ain't going to last. We're used to that. But here, what God promises is that there's going to be a ruler that's going to come. This is what we see in Jesus, that he fulfills this promise. The reason why I have put this under in our um, kind of organizing verse of this day in the city of David is we tend to look at these prophecies of the Old Testament, the things that God promises to us as in one category of reality. It's like, okay, well, here's myth. Here are the good stories that can kind of keep us going. And that's not how we should look at this. This is real history. Isaiah wrote this down on a particular date in the calendar. We don't know exactly what day that was, but let's say it was April 19th of 700 B.C., And it was fulfilled in year one, December 25th, let's say. Some say it was April 4th, but we'll not get involved in that. There was a specific date on the calendar in which Jesus came, really fulfilled in history. The due date has come, and Christ has arrived. But now you may say, now wait a second. 
I mean, I can see how the first couple of prophecies were fulfilled. We saw Micah, ruler out of Bethlehem. He was the rightful king of Israel because he was of the line of David. I can see it was born of a virgin. But what about this whole government of peace thing? Doesn't look all that peaceful to me. What's happening? Well, that's the beautiful thing, is this prophecy has been fulfilled in one way. But Christ is coming again. He's come once before on a very specific date on the calendar, and he will come again. This is not just some fanciful thought to get us through our miserable lives. This is a real promise, an actual prediction that is going to have its due date on some point in the calendar. When is that? I don't know. Neither does anybody else, by the way. People who try to set dates, don't listen to them. The Bible says there's no, no man knows the day or, or the hour. But just know that he is coming. He has fulfilled all of these promises. And there are many more that we could go through. I only had time to deal with three. The Bible prophesied that he would die on the cross. The Bible prophesied that he would help the poor. That he would be raised again. How he would die. Where he would die. All of these things. In fact, one calculated up, I think it was 100 prophecies that Jesus has fulfilled in one way, shape, or form in his life. He's good at keeping promises. Not one of them has ever failed. And he'll keep this one too. So when Jesus ascended up into heaven, after his earthly ministry was complete, he said, I will come again. Now, it's been 2,000 years since he said that. It was 700 years the first time. But God will complete his promises in time. And those promises are for you too. He's made other promises as well. Like, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. If you look at your life and you are honest with yourself, you will see there is sin all over the place in your life. And you say, I just keep struggling with this over and over and over and over and over again. I thought God promised that he would give me rest, and I don't feel very restful. Well, maybe it's because we haven't trusted him yet. Maybe it's because you keep him at an arm's length and say, it's like, well, I'll give Jesus a try. We'll see if he can do some things for me. It might be that we're asking for something he's not promised to give us. We're saying, well, I've prayed that he would help me win the lottery, and that hasn't happened yet. He didn't promise that you would win the lottery. Didn't promise you health and wealth, in this life anyway. But what he has promised you is forgiveness. It might seem fantastic that God would come to earth, would live the life that you were supposed to live, die the death that you were supposed to die, and then be raised again, as a promise that he can raise you from the dead one day. All that sounds way too good to be true. But he's already fulfilled promises that were too good to be true. And he'll fulfill this one too. And I know there can be times in our lives where it feels like, well, but I really needed this thing. It was a good thing that I prayed for and it didn't go through. Well, there's someone that can relate to you with that. I read this week an article about Elizabeth Elliot. For those of you who don't know who Elizabeth Elliot was, she was a missionary, a speaker, and a writer. She was born in 1926 and, in fact, just died about seven years ago. 
And in obedience to the Lord's calling to go to the ends of the earth and preach the gospel to all nations, believing the promise that all nations, tribes, and tongues would one day be around the throne of God, worshiping and praising him, she went out and took her linguistic teaching to the nation of Ecuador. She wanted to work with some of the natives that were there that didn't have a written language. So she decided to live amongst these natives, learn what their language was, build them an alphabet so that she could translate the Bible into that alphabet so that they could have the scriptures. It's an inspiring dedication of the gospel, isn't it? So Elizabeth does not lack faith in what she wants to do. But she needed someone to teach her this language, and the natives wouldn't have anything of it. But she came across a man, his name was Don. He not only spoke this Colorado language fluently, he also understood Spanish fluently. So he had a language that was known that he could make translations into. And he was a Christian, as it turned out, and wanted to reach these people too. And months of work went by as they were working together to get this thing translated down. And then he was murdered right in the middle of the process. And it seems like everything ground to a halt. And the question was, why? I'm out here on the mission field doing what you told me to do. And all my work has been cut off at the knees. But a few months later, another person was brought in to help finish the translation. And after many, many more months of work, charting all these things out on pieces of paper, had the, the vowels, the consonants, got all these things together, and had compiled it all neatly into this pack of papers that she'd be able to take to other linguists who'd be able to pick up her work where she left off. She'd been called to another area in her life and was set to head back to the United States to go and fulfill another mission work. And everything that she had packed into one suitcase was stolen. All of that work once again, dropped away. Why? It seems like God was working against her this whole time. Well, she took away a few conclusions from all of this. This comes from her biographer. It says, however, in time, Elizabeth reached a number of solid conclusions about such incomprehensible developments. One, is that sometimes God's sovereign will is mysterious and defies easy explanation. Our why questions may not be satisfactorily answered for a very long time, or perhaps not even in this life, but they will be answered in eternity. This is what we can take away from this. Not only that, she goes on to say that this is, gives us an opportunity to continue trusting and obeying God, even in the face of un, incomprehensible circumstances. This gives us an opportunity to know that our faith is real. If your faith in God has never been challenged before, sometimes it can be hard to know if you really trust God. Or if it's just like, well, this has been working for me so far. I can see with my eyes everything is fine. But it's when God covers your eyes and you can't understand why he's doing what he's doing. That gives us an opportunity to know, do we really trust God? Or are we just following along with our circumstances? And her final lesson that she took away from this is that when believers choose to respond well, to trust in God, despite these incomprehensible circumstances, that God gives himself. We get a greater understanding of who he is and what it is that he actually has for us in our will, or in his will. 
That's what we take from these things. The Lord did not lose Elizabeth's bag because he forgot about her or her because he wasn't powerful enough to stop someone from stealing it. But in fact, he had greater things for her. She actually was able to go back 40 years later and had found someone had managed to pick up her work anyway and had continued her work. They had a Bible and there were many that had come to Christ in her absence. The Lord continued that work, even if she wasn't able to be a part of it. This still continues. So what's our takeaway from all of this? What do I want you to know? One is that God fulfills his promises, especially ones that are for our salvation. He's not forgetful of little things, limited by big things, and can do far more than we ask or think. That's what I want us to take away from this in this Christmas season. The Lord's not forgotten you. But maybe you've forgotten about him. Maybe you've said, well, I was really counting on God to do this for me, and I didn't get it. So our relationship has been kind of fuzzy since then. Well, I think what that reveals to you is you were trusting and hoping in that thing and not in God. And if that was the case, then that was the kindest thing that God could ever show you. Anything else that you're going to trust in is going to disappoint you. Because anything else that you trust in will forget little things, is limited by big things, and can't deliver what only God can. So if that's where you are this morning, then I pray that you would reach out to God. Ask him for faith to believe in what he has promised to you. And especially if you have not turned from your sins and trusted in Christ, well, then you haven't even begun to trust Jesus yet. If you're not willing to surrender your life to him, then there's no promise for him to fulfill to you. So if you've not put your trust in him, today is the day. Reach out to him. And I promise you, he is mighty to save and transform. Let's pray. Our heavenly father, our mighty king, our promise keeper, I thank you for what you've shown us out of your word today. I pray that we would remember that you don't forget the little people, that you don't get held back by the big things, and that what you promise is more than we could ever ask or think. So I pray that we would have a greater faith in you today, that we would look to our Savior with expectant hope that you will fulfill all of our promises, all the promises to us, most notably that you will bring us to heaven and that one day you will return and bring peace to this whole world. Let us live in light of that. It's in Jesus' name we ask these things, amen.